Hear the word of the Lord from Colossians 3, 1 through 15. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living with them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. This is the word of the Lord. Um, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, we are in a series called Cruciform, short series. The word cruciform means the shape of the cross. It's actually an architectural uh, word that was used to explain the, the format of, of how old cathedrals, these Gothic French cathedrals were crafted, that they would actually uh, be in the shape of a cross. And, and what I'm arguing through this series is that not only should our buildings bear the shape of the cross, like you see in the back of the stained glass and right behind me here, but our lives as Christians, we should bear the shape of the cross in our daily life. The gospel, the cross of Christ, reshapes us as people. And, and what the cross does, it brings us into God's paradoxical kingdom, the upside down kingdom. We saw this in week one, that it's the word of the cross, which is perceived to be foolishness and weakness by the world, is actually God's power and wisdom for salvation. We see this in the fact that it's Jesus' death which brings us who believe into life. It is a life of self-denial which actually leads to fulfillment, true fulfillment. It's when you lose your life, you find it. It's where the last become first and the first become last. It's where the lowliest become the greatest. This is God's paradoxical kingdom. And there's another paradox that I would like to highlight this morning. 
one that's often overlooked, one that's sort of uh, glared over a little bit, but I think it's essential for understanding, essential for us to live our lives the way that God calls us to live. And in order to reckon with this, in order to wrap our minds around this paradox, I want to uh, call your attention back to week one of our series where I sort of laid out the, the, the gruesome nature of the cross, right? This, the cross is a torture device, uh, one that was perfected uh, in the first century by the Greeks and the Romans. It was meant to humiliate. And those who are put up on a cross, their, their image, their figure, they look so disgusting, so ugly, so broken down that people would have to advert their eyes. This gruesome cross is the fixture of Christianity, And the paradox is this, it's through the ugliness of the cross that God brings forth beauty. It's through this gruesome, nasty, bloody cross that God brings throughout uh, the creation, throughout his people, he brings glory and beauty. Now this means the cross not only justifies us, one thing that, you know, in the reform circles we tend to, justification is a big deal, right? We talk about being justified, being reconciled, and those are true. The cross does those things. It brings us back into relationship with God. But the other thing that the cross does, among the many, among the myriad, is it washes us. The blood of Christ sanctifies us. Now, that word sanctification um, is sort of a churchy word. You don't hear it very often outside of the walls of the church, but it basically means the, the process of being made holy. And even then, when we break it down like that, it still isn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's hard to wrap our minds around what exactly that means, the process of being made holy. It sounds, to be, to be holy, a lot of times there's a caricature of being stuffy and rigid and sort of like, you know, hoity-toity. But that's not at all what holiness is. In fact, um, Robert Chang, who's a pastor, he, he breaks it down for us like this. Sanctification is the process of becoming more beautiful in Christ Jesus. The process of, of becoming more holy, the process of sanctification is really a process of becoming a glorious creature, a more beautiful creature. It's where Jesus takes our sin-caused wretchedness, our vileness, and he pulls it out of us through the washing of the blood of Christ and transforms us into beauty. Now, this is a reality. This is, this is something like the fact that, that if you are a Christian, you are loaded with potential for glory. This is something that, that the apostle Paul speaks to and points to with absolute certainty in Colossians chapter three, verse four, when he says, when Christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory. The word glory, beauty can be used synonymously here. Splendor, beauty, majesty, all of that is sort of wrapped up in this when Paul says you will appear with Christ in glory. Now C.S. Lewis in, in his book, The Weight of Glory, says he helps us understand how glorious we might become. Because we tend to have a small view of the potential that we have. He says, we have the potential in Christ to become a creature so glorious, so magnificent, that it will strongly tempt others to worship. You think of that? 
so glorious, people will look at you. Oh, and, and vice versa, your neighbor, your brother or sister in your missional community will become so glorious that in the eyes of Christ, when the, when the redeeming work of Jesus has worked all itself all the way through, you'll look at them and you'll be tempted to worship. That is the level, that is the degree of glory that Jesus is bringing us to. And while there is this immediate glorification that happens upon Jesus' return, uh, in a twinkling of an eye, in, in, in the sound of the trumpet, the blast, there's this massive transformation that happens when Jesus reappears. The transformation of a Christian isn't reserved exclusively for the future. The Christian life is the ongoing process of beautification. Sanctification is a lifelong process where we are, are one time, once and for all, justified by the blood of Jesus. Sanctification is the washing and the outworking of that justification. In fact, the Apostle Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, and we, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He's saying here, if you're a Christian, Jesus is working on you. Jesus is making you more beautiful in real time. Just as Michelangelo takes his chisel and hammer and goes to work on a, a slab of marble to expose David, Jesus is doing that with you. When Jesus gets a hold of you, he is incrementally refining and exposing the glory he's already placed within you. Now, what we're looking at today is how the cross promotes, how the cross cultivates this beauty. Because here's what I want to share. The cruciform life... To live a cruciform life is to become incrementally more glorious in Jesus. To live the cruciform life is a life of increasing beauty. And the Apostle Paul keys us in on this of what this looks like in Colossians 3. It shows us what the beautification process consists of. Now, in order to, to go there, we must first start by understanding what it is that God deems as glorious, what it is that God looks at and says, this is what beauty looks like. Now, to make a statement like that, to, to say that, that God is the one who determines what beauty is, that, that tends to push against the modern mindset that tells us, that echoes the, 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 the musings of Plato and, and many other people who have, who have come out of the enlightenment and, and writing and expounding upon this, that says, Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. This, this idea that God determines what is beautiful pushes back on that inclination. If we have a beauty is in the eye of the beholder mentality, that makes beauty a subjective thing. Now, there is such thing as preference. Like what I find beautiful, you may not be as inclined to as much. But there is a standard of beauty. Now, here, here's how we arrive at this conclusion. First of all, we have to understand that God is spoken of in 1 Peter 1 as full of glory. The psalmist in Psalm 27 says, there's one thing that I want in all the world, in all my life, is to gaze upon the beauty of God, to dwell in his temple, to see the beauty. 
because glory and beauty are ascribed to God who is absolute. God is not relative, God is not subjective. We cannot invent our own kind of God. As soon as we do that, that stops being the real God. Since glory and beauty are attached to an objective God, an absolute God, that means there is a standard for beauty, there's a standard for glory. And God is that standard by which all things are measured in beauty and glory. So there is a standard. Now, when we think of beauty, most of the time we think in, in terms of physical appearance. Um, we tend to think uh, beauty is, is something that is almost exclusively visually seen. We step into somebody's home, it's well-decorated, fresh paint on the walls. You say, wow, this is a beautiful home. The, the vision of it says, wow, beauty, right here. I see beauty. You, you go, you know, walk along the river where they're doing um, a lot of the landscaping stuff right now, and you look at it, it's like, wow, that's nice landscaping. That looks beautiful. Or, or you even associate beauty with the person. They've got, they've got good skin, the good smile, their fit, their tone. There's something about them, that person, that's, that's beautiful. There's a visual indicator that links something or someone to beauty. But here's the thing. Physical beauty cannot be the end-all, be-all of God's definition of beauty. One, because God's invisible. God's invisible. How can you see the beauty of God if he's invisible? In the other place, in, in, in Isaiah 53, we're told that Jesus, it's prophecy of Jesus, that there's nothing spectacular about the way that he looks. Jesus was not classically good looking. And so when we say that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, we're still left wondering, how does physical beauty tie into this? It must go beyond that. In fact, a biblical vision of beauty does go beyond that, far beyond that. A biblical vision of beauty does include appearance to some degree, but it reaches far beyond that. Now, let me take you to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, Peter says this, Do not let your adorning become external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be in the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And so here, the apostle Peter says, physical beauty is not it. That's not the end all be all. There is a kind of beauty which God delights in that has more to do with the inner beauty, the hidden person of the heart that has an imperishable beauty. Here's the reality. Time is not kind to the way that you look. It's not. Things start sagging a little bit, a little bit of wrinkles, a little extra thickness in, in the midsection. Time's not very kind in this. But the internal beauty hidden in the inner person is imperishable. It's, it's uncorruptible. Now, when the Apostle Peter says this, he, he's not telling you, when he says, hey, don't, don't worry about the braiding of your hair or the gold jewelry or the clothes you wear, he's not saying, you know, come to church in your sweatpants. 
Right? He's not saying here, the bar's been lowered from a physical standard where you shouldn't, you just phone it in and not care about that. There, there's a place, this, this is true, especially if you're a young man or woman hoping to find a future godly spouse. There, there's some benefit in putting yourself together and being appealing. Again, not the end all be all. There, there's a priority placed on the internal beauty. Peter's not saying get rid of it, but focus on this inner beauty. Now, what constitutes inner beauty? How do we define what is the standard? What is the metric of this inner beauty? Well, if you go back to verse two of 1 Peter chapter three, and I don't know if it's up on the screen, but I'll just bring you up to speed where he says this. He says, respectful and pure conduct. Respectful and pure conduct. Now in this passage, Peter's specifically addressing women. He's saying there's such thing as feminine beauty. And in other places in scripture, he speaks of such thing as masculine beauty. There are different kinds of beauty depending on the gender the Lord has assigned you at your conception. There are unique applications of that, but there are also universal traits of glory, of inner beauty. And the apostle Paul points these out back in Colossians 3. So if you wanna flip back with me to Colossians chapter three, let me, let me call your attention to verse 12 where he starts listing some of these out. It says, put on then as, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, so even holy and beloved, lovely, the people who have been made lovely, the people who are made beautiful, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Here the apostle Paul is laying These are the standards. Here are the indicators of internal beauty, the hidden beauty of the inner person, right? Compassion. Now, if you interact with somebody that that embodies one of these things, there's something that's lovely about them. There's something that draws you to them. You enjoy that. There's something life-giving about being around somebody, somebody who's compassionate and kind. Somebody who is kingdom-minded enough to make themselves last so others can go before them. Somebody who's meek that demonstrates patience and forbearance. There's something beautiful about the one who can forgive, who can love steadfastly, unconditionally. The one who is rooted in the peace of Christ and not tossed around by everything else that's going on in the world. Now, what reasonable person would not want to be marked by these kind of traits, right? I think hopefully these are all things that we can all agree on. Yeah, I would like to be better in that. I would like to see more of that in my life. I think that would be good for me and life-giving for other people. Now, the reason for this is because this is what true beauty is. It's captivating. It's life-giving. 
God's definition of true inner beauty is the lump sum of what you see in Colossians 3, verses 12 through 15. It's all of them working together. He says, the thing that brings them all together, the thing that lassos them up and pulls them in tight is the love. Above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is what true beauty looks like. Now, I think that God has wired us, some of us, to be strong or inclined to some of these things more so than other people. What I mean by this is there are gonna be some people that have a natural tendency to be more forgiving than others. There are gonna be some people that have this natural tendency towards humility than others. But I do not think there's a person who naturally has all of these things all lumped up together and is able to execute them. There is an inconsistency with the way that we manifest these things from the inner self to the external world that shows us these traits don't all come naturally to us. And sometimes when they do come naturally, there's, there's a deal of inconsistency with them. So what we're seeing here, in other words, while we want this beauty, while we could long for all these things that Paul lays out in verses 12 through 15, there is an obstacle. There's something that stands in the way of us living into those things. There's a barrier to this kind of beauty. Now, what's shocking is, is that the Apostle Paul says it's not so much something in the way as it is someone in the way. There's someone standing in the way for the true, most real version of yourself in Christ Jesus. And it's not that person in your MC that's hard to love or hard to practice patience with. It's, it's not your boss who makes it hard to be humble and meek. It's not your spouse that seems to be unforgiving. The person standing in the way of you becoming your true self in Christ is you. Well, it's more specifically, it's, it's your old self. It's the word Paul uses for this. He says, there is an old self who is crowding out the new self. This old self, the man of the flesh, the woman of the flesh. I mean, we, we even had the profession of faith. We were, we were led by our fleshly desires. We, we were following the pattern of the course of this world that led us apart from Christ. That is the old self. That's the tendency of the old self who doesn't naturally embody these beautiful traits. But the one who naturally manifests the antithesis to those traits. Paul says it's the old self who's crowding out the new self. So spiritually speaking, if you're a Christian, you have a jackal and hide spiritual reality to your life. Are you familiar with Dr. Jackal and Mr. Hyde, this story, right? One man, one man in the flesh that has two alter personalities. One guy, the doctor, is a nice, likable, just seems to be an upright kind of guy, scientist, a little bit of a mad scientist, but for the most part, he's likable. And he drinks this potion, and there's this transformation that happens that brings out, it's basically himself unrestrained. 
The unrestrained self is basically, the leash is let go and he gets to do whatever he wants. And you have Mr. Hyde, who's, who's really this evil man. He's hell bent. And this is what we have going on in ourselves as a Christian, that, that there is the new self which has been recreated in Christ Jesus, a, a new person that's been made alive through the cross who is loaded with potential glory, who the Holy Spirit indwells right now and is helping you to will what is good and beautiful and true. And on the other hand, there's the old self, the self that is run by the powers of the world, that operates by sinful desires. It's self-seeking and leaves a trail of destruction in its wake. Now, this is why, as Christians, it can feel so confusing. It's, it's like why, why Paul says, um, I, I, the things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing, and the things that I do want to do, I find myself not doing. He's, he's exposing this inner conflict, this rivalry between the old self, the old man, and the new man. And so for us, we feel that. It's like, I know I don't want to do this, but I can't seem to help myself. The power of sin, the power of the flesh, the power of the world seems to have me on a leash and yanks me around. And when we feed the old self, the old self is like a pesky weed that will choke out the beautiful flowers of the new self. See, the beauty that Jesus wants to cultivate in you is most threatened by your old self, the way of the flesh, because the, the old self defiles beauty. The old self is irreverent towards glory. It is self-focused, it's entitled. And there's not a single one of us who weren't operating by the flesh until Jesus showed up and changed our lives. This is what Paul says here. He says in verse seven, in these you too once walked, operating by the flesh, driven by that which is earthly. You used to give yourself into these things. But for the Christian, Jesus has showed up. He's brought a new self. He's made a new self alive. Now the only way to become this beautiful creature, the only way to become more glorious in Christ is to deal with the old self. You have to address the old self. You can't just put it on the back burner and say, well, yeah, we'll sort it out at some point. The Apostle Paul commands us in the name of Jesus in verse five, to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He, he says, you have to become a sin assassin. You've got to put your foot on the throat of that which is earthly. See, unlike the marble of Michelangelo that is completely passive, that, that the, the artist just does his work and chisels away, we are not to just sit back idly and let Jesus go to work. Sanctification is a process that the Spirit enables us to participate in. That means there, there can be no such thing as Christian pacifism when it comes to dealing with my sin, when it comes to killing my sin. I must actively engage in this calling the Lord's put on my life. 
In other words, to, to live fully alive to God, you must crucify the old self. Now, this is a key piece of the cruciform life. This is what John Owen calls the mortification of sin. The Christian life, Paul says you, you've been crucified with Christ. You've, you've, you've died with Christ. And that's true in this once and for all sense where at the cross, you have been considered dead to sin and you are made alive in Christ. But for the Christian every day, there are many, many crucifixions that happen as we put our sin to death, as we put the old man to death. To live fully alive to God, we must crucify the old flesh. This is part of the cruciform life. John Owen says, we must kill our sin lest sin be killing you. See, the old man isn't a neutralized threat. The, the old man still very much wants to step in, steal, kill, rob, and destroy. So Jesus calls us to take the offensive, to, to go after the old flesh and, and put it to death. Now, what exactly are we to put to death? What are we killing? What are we crucifying? Well, Paul lays that out in verses five through nine. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, he lists some things. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry on account of these the wrath of God is coming in these you too once walked when you were living in them but now you must put them all away now he goes here's another list anger wrath malice slander and obscene talk from your mouth don't lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self now Paul lays out here is here are the characteristics here are the markers of the old self he starts off this is shocking in our day and age right now sexual immorality is the first thing that he mentions now if you've been driving around you can see rainbow flags are everywhere we are in a culture that has escalated, that has glorified sex, and not just sex, but perversions of it. A kind of sexuality that runs against the grain of God's design of what God deems as beautiful and good. Now, homosexuality is not the only place where there is sexual immorality. You can very much be a heterosexual person and steep in a life of sexual immorality. Pornography, Adultery, cohabitation, all of these things fall under the biblical category of sexual immorality, which God lays out. What is it? What, what, if, if he denounces sexual immorality, we must understand what sexual morality is. First of all, it means that sexual acts take place within the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. That's God's design since the beginning. between one man and one woman in the confines of covenant marriage. Anything that happens outside of that is considered sexual immorality. So much so that Jesus says, even if you look at a woman lustfully, you are guilty of immorality. You've committed adultery in your heart. See, one of the things that the church will be marked by is her pure sex ethic. Having a pure, pure theology 
of sex, that fights for purity. So if you're not currently in the confines of marriage, what do you do? How do you live? How do you honor the Lord? By purity, by purity. It's just sexual immorality, put it off, put it to death. Now statistics show that there is no difference there's a very small difference. I'll put it like this. There's a very small difference, statistically speaking, between those in the church and those outside of the church who are guilty of sexual immorality. Christians are just a little bit better at hiding it, not talking about it, less, less uh, flamboyant in the expression of it. You're called to put to death the sexual immorality that is among the church, the impurity, the passion, the evil desires, that which is disconnected from holy contentment, that is disconnected from holy pursuit. Now, this is the beginning, but it's not the end at all of what gets listed out. I would just touch on a couple more. Idolatry. What is idolatry? Now, a lot of times we think about idolatry, we think of like this, this idea, we've got some little shrines up on a mantle or we've got some sort of, you know, some sort of setup in our homes that say, well, I worship this kind of God. Well, idolatry has morphed and we no longer need these little statutes and things to, to tell us what it is we're worshiping. We find ourselves worshiping things all of the time. John Calvin says our hearts are like idol factories. If we're not worshiping God, we're always worshiping something else. Be it comfort, Success, the opinion of man. See, the old man is driven by these things. It, so much so that, that it's associated with bondage. We saw this even this morning that was read in, in the profession of faith. We were, we were in bondage to sin, that we were under the thumb of sin's tyranny and it was driving us, it was compelling us in a way that it felt like we were helpless in. No matter how, how hard I want to change it, no matter how hard I want to change my life, I sin has its grip on me. Now, another piece, as he goes on to, to maybe, you start off with some of the greater sins at the beginning and you get in later on in verses eight, talks about anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk, don't lie. Now, these may seem sort of trivial, but these are crucial things that must be put to death. Now, Paul writes, I believe he's in Galatians, of how slander, how gossip can destroy a community. I think slander and gossip are among the biggest threats of the Christian church. It's one of the ways that the enemy wants to undermine the effectiveness of the church's mission to make disciples plant churches, renew the city. Not, not just our church, but the whole church, to make disciples of every nation. Paul warns, be careful that you do not bite and devour one another, lest you be consumed. By the end of it, nothing's left. Nobody's left. Nobody can stand. The old self is laden with infirmities, laden with brokenness that just perpetuates brokenness. Eventually, it will kill you, and for sure will have a negative effect on people around you. It will not promote their, their health, their flourishing. This is why Paul says, 
put your sin to death. Put to death what's earthly in you. Now, the next question is, how do we kill? If we're committed to a cruciform life where we are putting what is earthly in us to death, how do we go about doing it? What is the spiritual equivalent of we'd be gone? I think this is what Paul identifies here in chapter three. Now, first we have to see, first we have to see what the old self is for what it is. We have to see that the old self isn't just this well-intentioned person that, you know, sometimes messes up here and there. We have to see the motives that are underlined, that's driving us, that are not fixed upon God. We have to see the old self as ugly, as, as antithetical to true beauty, that is flat out deplorable. Now, this is why the wrath of God is against it. That's what verse six says. The wrath of God is against these things. Now, when we talk about the wrath of God, I am convinced, and I, I'm guilty of this. I've done this before. When I start talking about the wrath of God, I have to be apologetic about it. Oh, the wrath of God. Well, you know, I promise God's not off his rocker. He's not gonna come down, you know, too hard. See, I think that's even a problem with our understanding. That's the old self. The vision of the old self sees the wrath of God as a bad thing. We do. If we're seeing the wrath of God through the eyes of the new man, we see it as a good thing. Because either one, all the sins that I've committed, all of the things that the old self has done and will continue to do, even though the, the flesh is trying to be put to death, Either one, get dealt with on the cross where Jesus pays the price. The wrath of God is fully poured out upon those things so I don't have to deal with that. Instead of getting God's wrath, I get the embrace that Jesus earned. Or that which continues in rebellion against God, that just which continues in the old way according to the flesh, that which is ugly, that, is, that which is destructive, there will be an end to that. There will be a judgment where God deals with it once and for all, and it will stop. So one day, all that will remain is beauty. That's a hopeful thing, to think the new heavens and the new earth, which are coming, there will not be one ounce of defilement. Not one shred of sin left because Jesus will have definitively judged it and put it away for good. The wrath of God shows us that God is serious about glory. That God is serious about beauty. He's serious about his beauty being known in the cosmos and it will be reflected through his creation specifically among his people. Because God has a distaste for that which defiles and corrupts glory, that which is inhumane, he will put it away for good. We have to see our sin for what it is. We have to develop a distaste for it. Now, how do we do that? Thomas Chalmers calls it the expulsive power of a new affection. 
The thing is that we like, like, we like our sin. There, there's something in us that just wants to hold on to sin for a little bit longer. Just let me get one more time and then I promise I'll change my ways. Let me get away with this one more time and then I promise I'll repent and I won't do it ever again. And over and over and over. The power of sin seems to have some residual over us. The reason for that is we still find our sin captivating. There's still something that we look at it and though in some warped and twisted way, we see something that, that, that is a counterfeit of glory, a counterfeit of beauty, something that gives me what I want but in the cheapest way possible. We have to find a power, the expulsive power, a power so strong that it ejects the old and launches us towards the new. This is exactly what Paul is talking about in verses one and two. He's saying we have to find ourselves captivated by something that's far more beautiful than even the best of what this world has to offer. And he says this in verse one. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You have to be heavenly minded. It starts with seeing your sin for what it is and developing a heavenly mindedness will help you see this. It'll be the apples and oranges comparison. But to set your mind on things above, to see the glory and the beauty of Christ, so powerful as it is that it weakens your affections for everything else that is contrary to it. Now, this is not a once and for all thing. It's not like, oh, yeah, I see Jesus for beauty, as beauty the moment I came to faith in Christ. And yes, there is that. But that one time cannot sustain us for a, the whole journey of a Christian life. There has to be this continual renewal, this constant setting of our mind on things that are above to be captivated by the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. Which is why Paul says this in verse 10. And I've put on the new self, which is being, he says, the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. That this, this new self is constantly being renewed. Every time we launch our eyes toward heaven, every time we fix our gaze on the, the one who is truly glorious, there is this renewal that takes place as we attach ourselves to the true knowledge of the true Jesus. And this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 that from one degree of the glory to the next, we are changed as we fix our eyes on Christ. As we transfix our gaze on Jesus, we are transformed by Jesus. But he does this by saying there's something specific about Jesus that you need to continually take in. There's something specific that, that when you think of Jesus, you have to keep coming back to time and time again. And it's this reality. It's something that's already happened in the past. It's not something that you're striving for. It's not something that you're trying to earn. It's not something you're trying to, to do in order to gain God's favor. It's something that has already definitively happened. And he says this in verse three, that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is a present reality that you have died, past tense, 
and your life is, present tense, hidden with Christ and God. He's pointing us back to the death of Christ at the cross. And the cross shows us just how nasty our sin is. See, the old self was so gruesome, so deformed, so mangled by sin that the only way to bring you out of that was for Jesus to die a bloody and gruesome death. That's the only way that it could be dealt with. You can't pick up a self-help book. Tony Robbins can't help you here. R- Rachel Hollis is, is useless. It's like, oh, I almost said something really. It's like, oh, I can't say it. Spirit restrained me. It's like putting lipstick on a pig. That was a PG version. The cross shows us how nasty our sin is. It shows the effect that it has on you. It it literally, the wages of sin is death. And while it shows how nasty sin is, the other thing the the cross shows us is the beauty of Jesus fully on display. Like high octane beauty. What you see on the cross is the compassion of Jesus, a compassion unmatched by anyone, anything else in this world. What you see at the cross is the kindness of God towards sinners. What you see at the cross is the humility of the king of kings who would bow himself down, who would lay his life down for yours. What you see at the cross is the forgiveness of a God who is loaded with steadfast love. All of this is fully on display. This is why when you look at the cross, when you really see through the eyes of faith, you cannot help but be transformed. The cross tells us not only have you died with cross, but three days later, Christ was risen from the grave. Three days later, Jesus got up from the grave and you were raised with him. Your new life in Christ began the moment Jesus conquered sin and death. And he has given you new life. He has given you a life not defined, not controlled by the flesh, not controlled by the power of sin, not the tyranny of the devil. He has given you a new life that has opened you up to true freedom. This is what Paul gets out after here when he says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. There's a new ruler of your life. There's a new power that is even stronger than the pangs of death. And Jesus has exercised it for you and continues to do this. So every day that you get up and you fall into sin, the old self is doing the old self stuff and doing the sinny stuff that it tends to do. The new one, the new life that you've been given in Christ is strong in power through the Holy Spirit. To either fight sin, to flee from sin, to starve sin, so the old self can be put to death. And when the old self is put to death, it gives way for the new self to come to life. This true and glorious version of yourself that is hidden 
in Christ Jesus, in God, little by little becomes manifest right here and right now. That you begin to take on the very nature, the very character, the very life of Jesus. This is what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is, this is what spiritual renewal, this spiritual awakening, this is what conversion looks like. The old self put to death on the cross, the new self to life through resurrection. And this is something that only God can do supernaturally through the gospel. Only the power of God can crush the power of sin and death. The gospel is the only thing powerful enough to transition you from death into life. The gospel is what continually transforms us from one degree of glory to the next. Now let me ask you, Christian, what is it that you need to put to death? What is it in living the cruciform life that you need to lay on the altar that you have to put your throat or your foot on the throat of that sin? What do you need to run from? What is it that you need to starve? What is that thing of the old self that you need to detach from completely? And what what will help you get a better glimpse of Jesus to help you fight? What will help you Fix your eyes on the things that are above and not the worldly things. How might community support you? How might you support your community? What kind of a relationship would you have with the Bible? Over this, this year, we've been doing this, this campaign, this Feast to Flourish campaign, a daily Bible reading plan where we're all reading the same chapters of the Bible, one, one chapter a day, going through it. And, and I don't know if you realize this, but every time you open up your Bible, it's as if heaven opens up, as if the eyes are, are, are peeled back, the, the blinders on the eyes are peeled back so you can get a real glimpse of the real Jesus if it takes a new vision, a new, a more powerful uh, love to replace that which is not helpful for you, what will it take to see that? And how might we get, our, get ourselves aligned to that? Now, if you're not yet a Christian, there's hope for you. If you find yourself not just formerly walking in those things that the Apostle Paul lays out, but currently walking in those things, there is hope for you. That Jesus died to forgive you of your sins. Jesus died to put those things that are holding you back, that are keeping you from living the most glorious version of your life as possible. Jesus did this for you so that you could find true life. Would you, by the eyes of faith, see the beauty of Jesus on the cross? Now, let me say this as I wrap things up here. 
in real time, it may not feel like Jesus is making something unbelievably beautiful in you. At times, it feels that progress, this, this transformation is slow. But the hope that we have in Christ is that the good work that God begins will be brought to completion. God will not leave you hanging. God continually is inviting you into the glory that he has afforded for you. And the thing about this is, when the church does this together, when we as a people are committed to putting what is earthly in us to death so that the new man, the glorious man, the glorious woman can come to life, the church becomes so attractive. The church doesn't settle for counterfeits of love, doesn't settle for counterfeits of kindness or compassion, but the real stuff, the high octane stuff that God implants in his people through the gospel to continue on. And the, when the church lives like this, we see beauty unfolding. I watch the Sandlot, it's like this. The church becomes to the world what Wendy Peppercorn is to squints. You gotta watch the Sandlot. He's captivated by her beauty. He does crazy stuff for it. There's something about her that just grips him. And when the church lives into the beauty that Jesus has created her in the new man, it's attractive. Now, it's not attractive in the worldly sense. There, there, there's gonna be some misalignment of, of expectations. Because the Bible defines beauty as a certain thing and the world says beauty is this other thing. The Bible says this is what love is and the culture says no, this is what love is and they are at odds with one another. But to the degree that we love one another, to the degree that we are humble, to the degree that we are compassionate, to the degree that we are forgiving, forbearing, kind, and loving, this will draw people to Jesus. Now, the Lord's Supper is a reminder for us. It's a reminder that we have been brought from death to life definitively. That if your faith is in Jesus, that you have died to sin and you have been made alive with Christ. This, this meal points to that reality, but this meal also fuels us to live into the calling that God puts upon us. This meal is a means of our own sanctification, our own beautification, that through this meal, the Holy Spirit empowers us to put this, the flesh to death so the Spirit of Christ can come alive in us. So let us take this meal knowing full well that Christ has already bore the wrath of God upon himself to bring us into new life. And this new life, we give ourselves to fully with joy and gladness, knowing that glory awaits. Father, Father, we thank you for this gospel message. We thank you. There's nothing that we could do, nothing in our own power, nothing in our own means that can make us more acceptable before you. We are totally reliant upon the gift of grace, totally reliant upon the word of the cross. And this morning, those of us with faith in Jesus, we, we, 
we fix our gaze upon him who is seated right now in the heavenlies, who is ruling and reigning, not not just in the church, but through the cosmos. Lord, would you rule our hearts and our lives in a way that is pleasing and acceptable to you? Will you transform us from one degree of glory to the next as we put that which is earthly in us to death so that the spirit may come to life? Would beauty unfold? Would the glory of the gospel be palpable here in your people? For our good, and ultimately to the praise of your glorious grace, we ask this in Jesus' name.